Hey there, it's Stephen Dubner. Before this week's show, a couple quick things. First, thank you so much for making Tell Me Something I Don't Know the number one podcast in America, England, Canada, Australia, South Africa, and beyond. We are very happy that you've lent us your ears. So thanks. Also, we are always looking for great contestants. So if you want to come to one of our live shows and tell me something I don't know, please visit tmsidk.com. And even if you don't have something to tell me, you can buy tickets to attend a taping. Also at tmsidk.com. Hope to see you soon. On to the show. Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find find out out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. (laughs) Because I want you to tell Tell me me something something I I don't know. know. Here's something I bet you didn't know. Anonymized data from Foursquare, the location-based social tech firm, can identify the exact day of the year that you will put down the barbells and pick up a cheeseburger. We know that people go to gyms and fast food restaurants a lot. Right after New Year's Eve, people return to the gym in droves. This is something that everybody understands. But there is one day when people's bad habits catch up with their New Year's resolutions. And that date is the first Thursday in February, which in 2017 is going to be February 2nd. That's the day that we call fall off the wagon day. And that's when the downturn in visits to gyms and the upswing in people going to fast food restaurants intersect. And the second Friday in February, that's actually the most popular day for fast food eating. And that's what we're calling the fatty solstice. Welcome to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I'm Stephen Dubner, and our fatty solstice story comes from Foursquare's Sarah Spagnolo. Thanks to Sarah for helping us set the table for tonight's theme, Things That Go In Your Mouth. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is a new kind of game show. Rather than trying to stump you with some random piece of trivia, we want you to stump us. We invite contestants from our live audience to tell us their IDKs, their I don't knows. To judge these IDKs and eventually to pick a winner, we've put together a panel of people who already know quite a bit. So would you please welcome the medical ethicist and Dr. Zeke Emanuel, Happiness Project author Gretchen Rubin, and former White House chef Sam Cass. Good evening to all of you. Thanks so much for being here. Dr. Zeke Emanuel, here's what we know about you. We know that you are an oncologist, a healthcare reformer who helped the White House design the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. We know you've written an essay called Why I Hope to Die at 75. We know also that for all your spunk and vigor, that you are in fact the least bombastic of the three Emanuel brothers, Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel and WME Super Agent Ari Emanuel. So Zeke Emanuel, tell us something we don't know about you. So uh, I got arrested and spent the night in a freezing jail in Oxford, England. Um, 
I was riding my bike just after midnight, and I made a left turn, and a cop car pulled around, and he, uh, sort of six-foot-four guy, got out of the car and asked me why I made the turn, and then he said, are you drunk? And I said, no, and I blew in his face to prove there was no alcohol on my breath. <laughs> really dumb idea. Uh, all right, so <laughs> you're saying the most incriminating thing you've ever done is turn left on a bicycle <laughs> in England, right? All right, moving on, Gretchen Rubin. We know, Gretchen, that you've kind of cornered the market on happiness with your Happiness Project book, your podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, and also you do pretty well in the self-awareness department as you once confessed that you've become, quote, a bit of a happiness bully. All right, Gretchen Rubin, that's the official bio. What are we missing? Well, it's something that a lot of people don't think contributes to happiness, and I don't often admit, is that I am a lawyer, um, and I actually clerked for Sandra Day O'Connor um, before I turned to writing. You're not ashamed to have been a lawyer, are you? <laughs> no, no, no. But I think people are surprised if I Yeah. Know. Our final panelist, Sam Cass. Sam, we know that you are a nutrition activist and entrepreneur, that you now work with a venture capital firm called Acre. We know you were uh, the chef at a place called the White House, I believe it is, the White House in uh, Washington, D.C. from 2009 to 2014. And we've all heard the story about how you hand-fed President Obama exactly seven almonds every night, a story that, uh, that you and the president later made clear was a bit of an exaggeration. Uh, apparently, you, you once gave him nine almonds. Um, <laughs> but Sam Cass, tell us something we don't yet know about you. Well, I guess even though I ran the First Lady's sort of signature health initiative for many years, in high school, um, my nickname was the Candy Man um, <laughs> because I used to walk around with giant bags of bulk candy at all times that I consumed and passed out to uh, all of my good friends. That's so sweet. I mean, literally, but also it's sweet. Where you, you said you passed it out. You weren't selling. No, I wasn't selling. Not, not that kind of Candy Man. Not that kind of Candy Man. It was all, it was all you know, in good service. What were service. you using? Uh, oh, I, I ate more candy than you could imagine. So I'm like a reformed, you know, I've you come are. around. Yeah. There's hope. So I love it. Tonight's panelists are a candy-loving nutritionist, a death-loving doctor, and the happiest lawyer we've ever known. So, <laughs> so this should be fun. Uh, it's time now to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Panelists, here's how it works. Contestants from the audience will come on stage and deliver their IDKs. It will be your job to grill each contestant, ask whatever kind of questions you'd like, once we've heard all the contestants, you will vote on a winner. There are three criteria you'll use to judge the contestants' IDKs. Number one, does their IDK surprise you? Is it something you truly didn't know? Number two, is it worth knowing? And number three, is their IDK demonstrably true? So to help out with that demonstrably true part, we need just one more thing, which is a real-time human fact-checker. So, would you please welcome Sean Ramosvaram. Sean makes radio and podcasts with WNYC Studios, including Radiolab's Supreme Court spinoff, More Perfect. So, Sean, I hear you recently stopped putting something in your mouth? Uh, after 17 years, I recently completely cold turkey stopped smoking. Oh. I'm I'm not even that old. I'm 31, so if you do the math there, I was like a bad teenager <laughs> who made a lot of illegal left turns on his bicycle. You know, if only you'd gone to school with Sam Kess, he could have got you hooked on candy instead. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, right? I know. <laughs> All of our vices, yeah. Panelists, one more thing before we bring up our first contestant. While you should be firm in your questioning, I also encourage you to be kind, especially because 
Before the night is done, you, the judges, shall also be judged <laughs> when we spin our wheel of extraordinary angst. <laughs> okay, it's time to play. Tell me something I don't know. Would you please welcome to the stage our first contestant, Maureen Brown Petraka. <laughs> Maureen, where are you from? What do you do? I'm from Manassas, Virginia. I'm a stay-at-home mom with three teenagers, Oof. two cats, and a dog. And when I'm not college visiting with my twins, I'm at home cooking in the kitchen and experimenting. All right, that sounds fun. Fits tonight's theme, things that go in your mouth. So what do you know that's worth knowing that you think they don't know? What once ubiquitous food has nearly disappeared from the American diet? Passenger pigeon? <laughs> mm. <laughs> They're gone. <laughs> Did George Washington ever eat this food? He kept it on hand for guests. Does whiskey count as food? <laughs> Not liquid. Not it seems like liquid. people you see Johnny Cakes all the time, but I don't see George Washington like having a Johnny Cake uh, on the shelf. Hardtack. Hardtack, yeah, that's what I'm nope. thinking of. Was it an animal? Yeah, it was an animal, and it was eaten well into the 20th century. Maureen, I, I bet we could eventually name every animal and get to it, but why Buffalo. don't you put, a, put us out of our misery here? Okay. Uh, a few months ago, I was experimenting in the kitchen. I decided I wanted to do my 10,000 hours and get better. So I went to my trusty 1896 Fanny Farmer cookbook, and I turned to the back, and I looked at the lessons, and the first lesson was mutton chops. Ah. But... Mutton chops were nowhere to be found. They were not at my grocery store. They were not at my specialty store. Lamb, which is the young sheep, is everywhere. Mutton, which is an older, mature sheep, is nowhere. So what happened was two basic things, and they're both related to World War II. First, cheap cuts of mutton were put in the canned rations that the soldiers ate. When they came home from the war, they said... Never feed me mutton again. Yuck. Secondly, synthetic fibers began to replace wool. And with that, it no longer became viable to keep sheep for long periods. And so mutton disappeared from the American diet. But mutton is healthy. Mutton has the highest omega-3 of any grazing animal. Reverse ovine ageism. <laughs> Bring back mutton. <laughs> so, Maureen, you went in the blink of an eye from a fascinating mutton fact giver <laughs> to a, a mutton advocate like that. And a passionate one. Have you ever had mutton? I did. I it, had to special order it from Kentucky and have it shipped to me. It's not so great stuff. Yeah, isn't it? It actually is if it's prepared correctly. Right. You have to cook it for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And are you you do your cooking from an 1896 Fanny Farmer cookbook? <laughs> right. Sean Ramosferm, much ado about mutton. What do you know, brother? Uh, it looks like you might be right, Maureen. Uh, you're not alone in wanting the uh, mutton comeback. Um, Prince Charles, of all people, because mutton was huge in Great Britain, where like famous for its delicious and you know exotic <laughs> foods yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. like mashed potatoes and crumpets. Uh, it's still popular in a lot of places, including. Um, France, Africa, the Caribbean, the Middle East, India, China, Australia, New Zealand. So basically anywhere but here. So I just recommend you travel more once your kids are out of college. 
and eat delicious mutton elsewhere. Maureen, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. Panelists, later you will be asked to rank all our contestants and pick a winner. For now, let's welcome our next contestant, Chris Wink. Chris, before we hear your IDK, why don't you tell us what you do? I am uh, one of the co-founders of Blue Man Group. Oh! Oh. (laughs) And uh, also one of the co-authors of a book called Blue Man World, which is just releasing now. We are really, really happy to have you here, Chris. I must say you look uh, pretty normal without the blue paint. Uh, Chris Wink of Blue Man Group, let's hear what you know that we don't know. Okay, uh, the question for you is, uh, what foodstuff rates the highest in terms of consistency and texture? Meaning like mouthfeel. Mouthfeel. I'd go with French fry. I was going to say mashed potatoes. But you've got to take the taste part out of it. It's it's consistency. Is it effervescent? It's not effervescent. Which food stuff rates the highest, then, in terms of consistency and texture? Well, let me give you a little background. At Blue Man Group, I've learned a lot about a a class of substance known as colloids. And uh, that's just a fancy word for gooey stuff. Mm. (laughs) And uh, what's cool about colloids is that they don't fit into one of the three categories of matter, uh, gas, liquids, or solids. Actually, colloids are a suspension of one form of matter into another. So whipped cream is a a gas suspended in a liquid. A marshmallow is a gas suspended in a solid. Uh, Mud, paint, and ketchup are solids suspended in a liquid. And jello is a liquid suspended in a solid. So basically, when it comes to texture, all the coolest stuff from shampoo to taffy are colloids. Food manufacturers have figured out that people respond very favorably to colloids, and so they make a lot of colloid foods available, but they also add a lot of colloidal additives like guar gum and carrageenan to make our food gooier. So it shouldn't be a surprise that the the highest rated food stuff is in fact a colloid. In fact, it's a three-way suspension. You could call it a super colloid. Uh, because the people who invented this found a way to uh, suspend a solid and a gas into a liquid. Also, what adds to the magic of this food stuff is that when it goes into your mouth, the pressure and heat from your tongue turn the solid into a liquid and release the gas, making you feel like a digestive superhero. <laughs> At least that's my theory as to why the number one rated food stuff when it comes to texture is the colloid known as soft-serve ice cream. Ah. Is there any other, like, triple threat like that? Like, where they yes. managed to oh, do Yes, oh, actually, all... yes. There's a couple of triple threats. Cow patties. Oh, Methane, methane. <laughs> liquid, and solid, you know, grass. Yeah, yeah. Now, I invented the term super colloid, but I think there should be a term there super should, colloid. There should, absolutely. Sean, what can you tell us about Chris Wink's super yeah, colloid? Yeah, after some quick Googling, I also checked Bing. It looks like, you know, like... You might feel like a digestive superhero, but you're not going to look like one because a lot of the colloids out there are just fatty foods like ice cream and whipped cream and like Krispy Kremes and all the cream families, you know. (laughs) So it checks out that people like the feel of them, but I don't think we like the look of them (laughs) because... At Blue Man, uh, you know, when they eat Twinkies, it comes right out their chest in a couple of seconds. So they have a a built-in way that it doesn't become part of their bodies. (laughs) I'm going to fact check that, actually. (laughs) Excellent. Chris Wink, many thanks, and may your blue period never end. Thank you so much. Let's welcome, please, our next contestant, 
Ashbel McElveen. Hello, Ashbel. What's your story? I am a chef, and I own a company called Ashbel Smokehouse Deli, and I specialize in unusual pastrami's. Ooh. Uh, and you didn't bring any for us? I was say. <laughs> I want a t-shirt with that. Well, check online. Smokehousedeli.com. <laughs> well played. Anyway, I founded the James Hemmings Foundation to honor the first chef in America. All right. You're a chef. What are you here to tell us tonight about things that go in your mouth? What does ice cream have to do with slavery? I didn't have to close any tabs. I just kept them all open. This is great. I was, I was about to close them all. Was, oh, ice cream. Let me. Ice? Gotta imagine ice back in the day was uh, yeah. kind of a real challenge when it came to ice cream. Yes. Not what you're looking for, Ashbell, is it? No. Is there a particular ice cream to America story that you're trying to tell us? Yes. All right, tell, tell us what you know. In colonial America... Soft-serve ice cream, similar to a loose milkshake, was how George Washington and others enjoyed ice cream. This all changed in 1790, the late 18th century, when an enslaved American, James Hemings, went to Paris with Thomas Jefferson for the express purpose of being trained as a French chef. And he excelled and trained at the Chateau Chantilly, and took over as chef at Jefferson's residence in Paris, Hotel Longiac, which was the first American embassy. He was paid a wage, and uh, he used some of that wage to train with master pastry chefs in Paris and learned the firm version of ice cream, which he in turn made in a historic dessert served June 20th of 1790 in New York City. The dessert that he served was warm pastry stuffed with vanilla ice cream. Also known as? Warm pastry stuffed with vanilla ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Well done. And did people lose their minds? Well, uh, he served a multi-course dinner, and it was a dinner that brought bitter enemies, Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, together. Yeah, I think there and was a scene in Hamilton the about Assumption this. Dinner. In the room where it happened. The room yes. Where yeah. it happened. And the, and the, yeah. the dinner was the room where it happened, and James Hemings made this incredible dinner that changed the course of American history. So that song in Hamilton is really just about ice cream, you're saying? <laughs> well, no, it's about, it's about a backroom politics. Okay, and history, but ice cream, <laughs> yeah. really. And ice cream was founded. So wait, ice this is cream a... was, was the sealer of the deal. So this is an absolutely amazing story. And you said earlier, Ashbell, that you uh, are involved with the James Hemings Foundation, yes? Yes. The aim of which is what, sir? The aim of which is to illuminate the uh, historical facts of African Americans key to creating fine dining in America in both the food and the service. Fascinating. Uh, Sam, I'm curious. Had you ever heard of a chef, James Hemings? Oh, yeah, of course. Absolutely. What What do you know about him? Uh, well, I'm learning a lot now. I knew the I yeah. knew the basics, <laughs> yeah. the basics. But there's a long and rich history uh, at um, Monticello. Some of the best dishes were created by uh, African Americans and enslaved African Americans, um, which transformed how we farm and how we eat. 
Absolutely. And was Sally Hemings and James Hemings, were they related? Sally Hemings and James Hemings were brother and sister. (gasps) Interesting. And they both were half-sister and half-brother to Jefferson's wife, Martha. Sean, uh, it's becoming kind of an ice cream evening. We had ice cream as chemistry. Now ice cream is history. I'm curious what more you can tell us. There's so much history. It wasn't Ben. It wasn't Jerry. It wasn't Hagen. It wasn't Dodd. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of people have been credited with bringing ice cream to the United States. Uh, The Quakers were apparently eating ice cream in like the 1770s. But also a guy named Augustus Jackson has wrongly been called the father of ice cream but like a lot it, apparently there are a lot of pockets of ice cream development and james hemmings was at at the fore of, of his pocket fascinating stuff ashbell McElveen, thanks for playing tell me something i don't know would you please welcome our next contestant zissel slipovich zissel tell us a little bit about yourself please uh, well, I'm a native of uh, Minsk, Belarus, and I'm a musician. I'm a founder of the Litvakus Klezmer Collective here in New York, but also, very importantly, I'm a father and husband. Ooh. Lovely. Uh, I can't wait to hear what you're going to tell us. The floor, Zissel, is yours. What, in your opinion, is the most versatile musical instrument of all? This is something you put in your mouth, so that narrows down a lot of this. Right, that's the right direction. Good so, deduction, but, Sam Cass. Harmonica. Yeah. I'm going recorder. Mm, well, that's warm. Zissel, what is the most, in your opinion, you say? Yeah, it's, it's an opinion-based The most thing. versatile musical instrument. Fact check this. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, this is a clarinet. Ah. Uh, uh, all woodwind instruments to which belongs this clarinet as well, are closely and tightly connected with our bodies and our embouchure. So this French word means the system of our face muscles, our teeth, our tongue, our lips. uh, And um, all these instruments amplify what we are physiologically and culturally. And it is possible to achieve a wide variety of sound shapes which translates into also a variety of sound effects and musical styles. Um, so what do you change is airflow speed, for example, can be soft or loud. Or the tongue position, varying from E, A, O. Can you say it? E, A, R. Right, let me play the same note with this changing tongue position. You'll hear it. And um, also the um, articulation. You can do ta, ti, or rrr. Can you do that? Right, it's not very uh, English-American sound, but still. So um, uh, the agility of musical instruments can allow us to make different sound effects and uh, speak different music languages. So, for example, speaking of laughter, I've heard a lot of laughter in this room uh, today, and you can imitate it on this clarinet. <laughs> you can transpose that, make it higher. <laughs> you know, we can uh, produce anything from classical to tango to jazz to uh, klezmer, Eastern European klezmer, which is what I do for a lot of time of 
my professional career. So. done Zizel Slipovich panelists. He stated it was his opinion. He defended his opinion pretty well with his mouth. What do you say? What is the hardest uh, instrument to play? Like to learn to play? Any instrument is the hardest one. <laughs> you want to have to practice like eight hours a day every day, no exceptions. Uh, Sean, uh, Zissel stated that his fact is essentially opinion. Although, <laughs> right, right. although I feel that in the course Strong of making... opinions are facts. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Especially this day and age. That's that's a, the bar of truthiness. So, Sean, is, can you find any truthiness now, about uh, this? The, was the hardest one to fact check. The most versatile instrument depends largely on who wrote the article and what instrument the author of said article plays. <laughs> Uh, the internet mostly goes for guitars as the most versatile instrument because you can play while singing and using the most versatile instrument of them all, your mouth. Also, it says like five out of six leading musicians agree that guitar playing increases your chances of not dying alone. Uh, I hate to ask this question, but Zissel, how does clarinet do in, in those terms? Is, that a, is it a well, bait magnet, the clarinet? That's the, that's the weak spot in that department. <laughs> uh, Zissel Slipovich, thank you so much for coming to play your clarinet and tell me something I don't know. Podcast listeners, it's time for a short break now. If you want to attend a future show or be a contestant on a future show, please visit tmsidk.com and please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I'm Stephen Dubner. Tonight's theme, things that go in your mouth. All right, let's welcome our next contestant, Jonathan Crystal. Come on up, Jonathan. Jonathan, who are you? What's your story? Uh, I am a fellow at the World Policy Institute, where I specialize in Middle East politics and international security. So the floor is yours. Things that go in your mouth. What do you know? How does the Iran deal affect what we eat? Is it something they export to us? That's plausible. Plausible. In the Reagan deal, if I remember correctly, when he was exchanging uh, Nicaraguan arms and money and whatever else was going on over there uh, when Admiral Ali North flew in, I think... If I remember correctly, there was a story that the Israelis knew something was up with Iran because the pistachios in the market got a lot better. You have told me something I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I completely made it up there, obviously. Um, uh, Now, Jonathan, was was Zeke faking us out, or does he know what he's talking about in this case? Well, you know, I, I can't speak to that particular example. I will say that Ali North was a colonel and not an admiral. But other... Oh. But, other but you're right. The answer, the answer um, is pistachios, though I can't... Oh. Uh, but how... That is Zeke Emanuel. That are is they, an impressive piece of BSing The real question is, there. are they radioactive or not? 
No, I, I would eat them, except I, I can't eat them because I'm allergic to nuts. But, <laughs> but if I could, the Iranian pistachios, I, I'm told, are, are very the good. World. I can vouch um, for that. Very you know, delicious. That? So you can't. So that. So you were violating various sanctions. <laughs> um, in the, in, I, no, I ate them in entrapment. Europe. No, I think no, they no. call that entrapment. It's, it's, <laughs> I plead the fifth. It's, it's actually, it's but they're actually really good. T- totally legal at any point to actually consume. Oh any, man, you uh, got me scared product. there for a minute, man. But <laughs> but the, don't you didn't buy it. But yeah. you know, but the answer. I know the president. But, I could get in trouble for that kind of thing. Um, up until 2010, uh, Iran was the world's leading exporter of pistachios. Um, when two things happened, Congress lifted a loophole that allowed for Iran to export Persian rugs, caviar, and pistachios. Um, the other thing that happened wow. was That's there were... The basic necessities of questionable. life. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> really? Seriously. Um, now, th- those were allowed to be exported, and the other thing that happened was there were international financial sanctions that made it difficult for Iran to export almost anything anywhere in the world. So the U.S. was the second largest exporter of pistachios. And... When uh, this loophole was lifted, there was a major push uh, to promote pistachio eating in the United States. The prices were going up. And Palm Wonderful, which controls about 60% of the pistachio market, started running those ads, the Stephen Colbert Super Bowl ads, saying pistachio should be the national nut. Um, And now with the uh, Iran deal, the uh, pistachio market, not in the United States, but elsewhere, uh, has been opened up. Um, But in the long run, that will probably have to happen here. Uh, It will be potentially catastrophic for U.S. pistachio producers, but Americans will be able to enjoy what, again, what I'm told are much more flavorful pistachios. Sam, I'm I'm curious, just as a chef, if we brought you a a big uh, bag of legal now Iranian pistachios, what what would you think about doing with them? Oh, I think they, they help make any vegetable taste a lot better. And so you could mix them with any kind of roasted whatever. I'd put them on all kinds of things. Sean, the Iranian nuclear slash pistachio yeah. deal. What can you tell us? Yeah, as Zeke verified, story checks out. Turns out they ditched Colbert over at Palm, not because like the pistachio was going out of vogue, but they want their new national nut to be Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely played. <laughs> Um, no, Iran in 2013, which is where the, the year I could find data for, produced 478,000 metric tons of pistachios, which was like a really impressive number until I looked uh, at how many metric tons of corn we produced the same year, <laughs> which was 353 million. So it's kind of a cottage industry. <laughs> uh, John, sorry. They, they offered Blue Man Group uh, a chance to do those ads if we were willing to get green. Seriously. Is that true? Get up here. Get up here, Chris Wink. Get up here. Yeah, sure. Right and, there. and you didn't do it because of integrity to blue? They offered us to be on the ads if we would be green. And we said no. The blue man's blue. What the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> the they commitment to integrity. I'll, I'll paint my head green for that. Are you crazy? <laughs> we are learning buckets full tonight, I have to say. Jonathan Crystal, thanks so much for playing. Great job. Our next contestant, would you please welcome Corey Gordon. Hey, Corey, where are you from? What do you do? I'm from San Diego, California, and now I'm working down in Washington, D.C. at a company called the Health Management Academy. All right, sounds good. Corey, what you got for us? All right, so 
Recent studies have associated coffee consumption with a nearly 50% reduction in the risk of developing alcoholic liver disease and cirrhosis among those who drink at least two cups a day. However, no mechanism of action has been found. My question for the judges is, how do you think that this association works? Zeke, you're a doctor. Maybe to you it's obvious. Sam, you're a chef. And I think it's probably because the researchers are alcoholics who like to drink coffee. <laughs> that was easy. Thanks. <laughs> Is that it? I mean, I think that might be it. Uh, hopefully not that much bias Does was it introduced. depend upon when you drink the coffee? It's just like if you only you drink it afterwards for the hangover effect. Uh... The, the timing you drink it doesn't matter. A lot of people thought that caffeine mattered, but they found that uh, caffeinated and decaffeinated coffee have very similar effects. Is Gretchen, the, you a coffee drinker? Sorry. Oh, yeah, no, I took a vow. I never turned down coffee. Um, <laughs> but is it the gut? Like, it seems like everything now, it's like, it's what's happening in the gut. Gretchen, <laughs> you are so smart. Ah. <laughs> so There is definitely an interaction with the gut, but can you think of what in the gut causes that interaction? Does it have to do with the microbiome? Since everyone's talking about the microbiome. Well, that's yeah. that's, what, that's what Gretchen the says, gut. the gut. Her gut feeling is that it's in the gut. Yeah, but there are lots of things in the gut There's that aren't the bacteria. Like 100 trillion cells. All right, so tell us your theory. You're, you're arguing this is a theory. Okay, so I got into all of this when I was a grad student this past spring. Drinking and alcohol and coffee? I was uh, drinking back beer. Back to my original point. <laughs> I was drinking beer at home on a Friday night, reading research papers, as one does in grad school. And so I was looking into it, and coffee has a compound in it called chlorogenic acid, or CGA, which is a known antioxidant and all-around good thing. And it has been recently found to increase the healthy kinds of gut bacteria. And our guts are a bacteria's idea of heaven with trillions of them interacting with our bodies. And among other things, they help to metabolize alcohol into acetaldehyde. So after realizing this coffee-gut bacteria link, I found separate research uh, that found a protection between healthy gut bacteria and protection against alcohol-induced liver disease and cirrhosis. Drinking alcohol throws the balance of our gut bacteria out of whack, and it promotes harmful bacteria to release compounds called endotoxins that can harm the liver through chronic inflammation and hyperactivating our immune systems. So my contribution is just linking three separate bodies of research and connecting the dots. I propose that the CGA specifically in coffee increases healthy kinds of gut bacteria, which prevent liver damage by avoiding a harmful cascade of alcohol-induced events. My hypothesis, which is untested, but biologically plausible, so, <laughs> no, there you go. It's a call for directing further research, and it just may help you justify drinking one extra pint of beer in the evening, provided, of course, that you follow it up with a cup of coffee the next morning. The man has a future as a physician. He can just invent any theory to explain his findings. Yeah, but Zeke doesn't drink coffee or alcohol, Al uh, so yeah. therefore his opinion on this just is, is irrelevant. Well, well, I encourage you to try the beer. I was actually drinking the night I started doing this research, and it was a coffee stout. So it really just, wow. it seemed the universe was talking to me. It tied it all together. You got to try one. So this is really just some fever dream from studying. <laughs> But let me ask you guys a question. It does seem the way that fMRIs were 20 years ago starting to be the beginning of the explanation of everything, that now the microbiome kind of is the, the explanation of everything. 
do you feel that the gut holds the kinds of concrete answers and kind of programmable answers that we're hoping for? Um, I think it depends on what we do with it. I mean, it's an incredibly complex system that if we continue to take a reductionist approach like we have with nutrition, part of the reason why a lot of nutrition science just doesn't add up is because it's what does this one nutrient do to fix everything? And it's actually quite a complex system. The same is going to be true for for a biome. So there's once this Harvard study of lots of health workers, dietary things. And my favorite three conclusions that tie everything in the show together are the absolute best food for you, yogurt, not sorry, mutton, right? The second best food, the second best food, nuts. And the worst food, absolute worst, any kind of potato. (laughs) Potato chips, french fries. Zeke, how many times today did you eat yogurt and or nuts? Uh, I ate both of them today. So did I. Yeah, Gretchen, you too. Sam? No. (laughs) (laughs) Sean, Corey's uh, coffee gut bacteria link, what do you know? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, it's a classic correlation, not causation scenario, I would say. Um, Unfortunately, the liver community is not buying it. I learned today that there's a liver community. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The liver community says the physiological and biochemical basis has not been established and some experimental evidence is needed. Right now, many of these studies are based on historical information provided by patients named Corey. Corey Gordon, thank you so much for coming to tell me something I don't know. Our theme tonight, things that go in your mouth. Would you please welcome now our final contestant, Andrew Coe. Hello, Andrew, what do you do? I'm a author and food historian. I have written about mutton. And, um, <laughs> pro or con? Oh, very pro, very pro. Um, and um, I'm also the author, with my wife, Jane Siegelman, of a book called A Square Meal. A Square Meal. So that sounds right in sync with our theme tonight, things that go in your mouth. Andrew, what do you have for us? What was the least appetizing meal ever served at the White House? Was Better not be in the haggis? last 10 years, man, or you and I are going to have some issues. If you start, so I've done a bunch, I've read a, a lot of old recipes from, and menus from state dinners from back in the day, and they were really crazy. I mean, they ate some real strange things. I assume we're talking like that period. Well, that's a pretty broad period. You haven't really defined it. <laughs> I got to tell you, panelists, the contestants are but, but kicking wait, 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 your asses I know. tonight, okay? okay? Sam, he didn't say strange. He said least appetizing. Did they, yeah, that's very carefully chosen. Was it in some dif- diplomatic you know, fight where they served them something crazy and horrible? Um, no, no. I don't know if American diplomats have actually ever done that. I know um, um, American diplomats have had that done to them. When Nixon was preparing his trip to China, the Chinese um, um, served the advance crew um, something called a salute to spring, and that included deep-fried sparrows, and um, they weren't into that. This isn't the meal where President Bush threw up on the Japanese prime minister? <laughs> no. <laughs> was everything, anything accidentally served that was spoiled? Like they no, made no, it? no. This was a very deliberate meal which got a lot of press attention. What was the least appetizing meal ever served in the White House? Well, in 1933, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt sat down to a meal of hot stuffed eggs um, smothered in tomato sauce with mashed potatoes and for dessert, prune pudding. 
And this was a very carefully chosen combination of calories and nutrients, which just cost seven and a half cents. Ah. And this was the bleakest year of the Great Depression, and Eleanor Roosevelt wanted the first family to provide an example. Um, and so the president's luncheon was supposed to show hungry Americans how to enjoy a nutritious budget meal. Um, and the press um, crowded into his office to ask him how it tasted, and he gritted his teeth because he <laughs> liked good food and said, it was good. <laughs> now, this meal might have remained a kind of footnote of history, except that it marked a huge change uh, in the way that Americans eat. Because under Roosevelt's New Deal, for the first time, the federal government actually gave food to the hungry. And its nutritionists initiated a huge campaign to teach Americans about healthy eating. And also, they formulated the first recommended daily allowances. So the next time you go to your local supermarket and you check the cereal boxes to see which ones have the lowest like fat or sugar content you have to thank President Roosevelt and that seven-and-a-half-cent meal. In that original recommendation, one of the food categories was, was fat and butter. Uh, yes, to yes. Get well, up. milk was the world's most perfect food, and that included all dairy products. So you tried to put as much dairy into your food as yeah. possible. But a separate category after dairy was also fats. And that's when everybody, strangely, was so much thinner. It was just a very different set of problems that we were facing, which mm. was lack of uh, undernourishment and malnourishment at a pretty wide scale. I got to say, though, that meal didn't sound terrible. If you had called the I mean, eggs and eggs. tomato shakshuka, right? Yeah. Right. Well, like well, the I've devil made is before. in the details. And actually, I'd have to show you the recipe, but there was no seasoning really in it whatsoever. Uh, uh, Deviled eggs, for instance, have like paprika and mustard in them. None of that in these hot stuffed eggs. And prune pudding was the dessert? Yes. <laughs> I mean, just on the words alone. Just... Eleanor plum Roosevelt pudding, seemed to pudding. love prune pudding. She was pushing it at every chance she could, she could get. And, you know, we've made a lot of these depression foods cause for our, the book we wrote. And um, prune pudding actually isn't that bad. But like any sort of semi-good dessert, if you just put whipped cream on it, it would taste a lot better. A lot of the foods that we love to eat and cook come from either marginalized communities or, you know, that came out of really tough times. So what's some, one of the dish that you cooked out of there that is now maybe one of your favorites or absolutely delicious? Well, there's a difference, though, between you're talking about the sort of cuisines of poverty and let's say Europe or China or other places have like a great tradition of cuisines of poverty, um, and we still eat those foods today. Like pizza, for instance, is like yeah, a, you know totally. Neapolitan street food. But this was like home economics food of the Great Depression, and this was food which was come up with in a laboratory, not in, by great cooks in people's homes. Sean, uh, the seven and a half cent lunch, what do yeah. you know? I'm with Sam. Like, that doesn't sound so bad, even without mustard and paprika. Um, they still had well, dessert hungry, in the Great course, Depression. Everything tastes good. I looked up other favorite foods of FDR, and what came up was cream chipped beef, fried cornmeal mush, and Welsh rabbits. So, well, I, I, I disagree with the first two. Those were the kinds of foods which he would, Eleanor would have served him. <laughs> But he was somebody who liked like um, porterhouse steak, Chateaubriand. That's he liked the really historical rich food. record begs to well, differ. Well, it's on the it's on Google. It must be true, I guess. Then <laughs> Andrew Coe, thank you so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. And now it's time for our panelists to rank their favorites and pick a winner. 
Okay, panelists, remember the three voting criteria. Did the contestant tell you something you truly did not know? Was it worth knowing? And just how true was it? So, who will it be? Andrew Coe, the seven and a half cent lunch. Corey Gordon, the coffee gut bacteria link. Jonathan Crystal, the Iranian nuclear slash pistachio deal. Zissel Slapovich with his very, very, very versatile clarinet. Ashbel McElbean with the origins of American ice cream. Chris Wink with ice cream, the super cool colloid. Or Maureen Brown Petraca with bring back mutton. While the votes are being tallied, we will take a short break. When we come back, we'll announce a winner and force the panelists to tell us something we don't know. I'm Stephen Dubner. This is Tell Me Something I Don't Know. We've heard from some wonderful contestants tonight. If you want to be a contestant on a future show, please visit tmsidk.com. Okay, the panelists' votes are in. Once again, thanks to all our contestants. The top three vote-getters are in third place with the seven-and-a-half-cent lunch, Andy Coe. Congratulations, Andy. In second place with ice cream, the super cool colloid, Chris Wink. And tonight's winner of Tell Me Something I Don't Know, the origins of American ice cream, Ashbel McElvee. Congratulations to all of you. Thanks so much for throwing your strange knowledge our way tonight. For our winner, Ashbel, what shall be your reward, sir? Well, do you remember the story we heard at the very top of the show? The second Friday in February. That's actually the most <laughs> popular day for fast food eating. And that's what we're calling the fatty solstice. The fatty solstice. So, Ashbel, you shouldn't have to wait till the second Friday in February to pig out. So we'd like to present you with this voucher for an entire Crave case at White Castle. All right? <laughs> Now that is 30 sliders, nearly 5,000 calories. Now, Sam. Dude, you're Sam killing Cass, me. Sam you're absolutely killing me. So, Sam, from a nutrition perspective, can you tell Ashbell, should he eat them all at once or over time? It actually doesn't get worse than that. <laughs> Congratulations, fellas. Thank you so much. And now it's time for our final round. Tell me something I don't know, in which our panelists are put on the spot and they have to tell us something we don't know about a topic chosen completely at random. Sean, would you please unveil what we are calling tonight the Wheel of Extraordinary Angst? It is a spinning wheel with 12 topics related to tonight's theme, things that go in your mouth. Sean is going to spin the wheel for each of you and pick a topic. We'll give you then a few minutes to think up something, and then you get to tell us all something we don't know on that topic. And our audience will pick a winner. Now, on the very slight chance that one of you tries to fabricate an answer, you got to remember our real-time human fact-checker, Sean Ramasurum, is standing by. Okay, Sean, let's give it a spin for Zeke Emanuel. See what we get. Sean, go ahead. A little more. Mark, just, ooh. Sausages. Sausages. Sausages trafe. <laughs> well, you can tell us about the trafiness of sausage in your, I when know. your time comes. Well, 
Would you spin the wheel, please, Sean, for Gretchen Rubin? Here we go. Medicine. Medicine. <laughs> that's big. That makes perfect sense, doesn't that, it? That's, that's Russian. <laughs> you want to switch? Yeah, no, you're, you're sticking with And Sean, would you just please spin yeah. the wheel for Sam Cass? The candy man gets candy. Oh, too easy. The system's rigged. All right. (laughs) We're going to let our panelists think and tell us something we don't know. Sam Cass on candy, Gretchen Rubin on medicine, of course, and Zeke Emanuel on sausages. Uh, A fact? I was looking at a text. I wasn't (laughs) going to. While the panelists are coming up with their IDKs, let me say this. We'd really appreciate it if you could tell everyone you know about this new show of ours. Also, subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to come tell me something I don't know, or if you just want to see the show live, please visit TMSIDK.com. You can also find us on all the usual social media outlets at TMSIDK underscore show. I'm the loser here. Okay, time's up. We'll start with Zeke Emanuel. Zeke, tell us something we don't know. My grandfather used to be a sausage salesman, actually. Is that right? Uh, so, well, I mean, I didn't know nothing. Well, how does that add you're up? Bar- you're burying the lead here. Yeah, you professed to be a sausage neophyte, and you got sausage making in the family. No, sales, sales. It was sales. only sales. Oh. Oh, he was a oh. sausage pusher, not maker. <laughs> got it. I once participated in making sausage. So you know how the sausage is made. Yeah, exactly. That's the key. And you actually said it in the introduction about my sausage-making experience. Uh, about the Affordable Care Act. About the, the Affordable Care, care Act. So tell us That's about making right. some uh, <laughs> health care sausage. Right, right. Well, I'll tell you one thing. So my boss, uh, who was Peter Orzek, head of Office of Management Budget, you know, the president really wanted a bipartisan bill, and he worked very, very hard for it. And so Peter was responsible for going up to the Hill and talking with Olympia Snow, because Olympia Snow was a Republican who he thought we could get. Um, Anyway, he would come back with her list of, I got to have this in the bill. And it was partially my job to make sure that list, whatever it was, we got somehow in the bill. And so that's part of the sausage making that I participated in. You know, for a guy who doesn't know anything about sausage, you did pretty well. (laughs) All right, Gretchen Rubin. Uh, tell us something you don't know about medicine. Um, so this is a great uh, little tip about medicine and happiness. So it turns out, you know, you talk about heartache and like you feel socially rejected and your feelings are hurt. So they did a big study and they tested Tylenol and a placebo to see if people's social, you know, social pain, if their feelings of heartache would be lessened if they were taking Tylenol. And it turns out it's pain, just like physical pain, and you can diminish phys- your heartache by taking over-the-counter medication, which my daughter right now, who's 17 years old, is going through a breakup. And every morning and every afternoon when she comes home from school, I'm like, here's your over-the-counter pain medication um, for your heartache. Um, and she takes it. And uh, I don't know if that's making things better, but it's something. Um, because we, don't, we often don't think of emotional pain as being like real pain. It's real pain. So heartache medicine. Heartache. Yes? Heartache for, very, social, for very, social pain, feelings of social rejection. Really, really well done, Gretchen Rubin. Sam Cass, who was a candy dealer as a teen. <laughs> but back it up. What can you tell us that we don't know? Um, 
I may not pose this to my, to my friends up here. What percentage of candy for the average adult uh, makes up the caloric intake in one day? So what percent of the American caloric intake is made candy. up of candy? You know, we eat a good and amount of candy. And candy includes cookies and things or just... Confectory, not? yeah. Not dessert. So it's, what not I like, not. it's not ice cream. It's, it's like the candy It's a great question. Bars. What are your guesses, guys? Gretchen... So the I, only I, thing I know is that a lifesaver is seven calories. And you eat a lifesaver. And you have like one a week broken into seven pieces? That's that's the point. If you eat a lifesaver every day and you don't work it off, that's a pound a year. Except it doesn't work like that. Okay. Of course it doesn't work like that, but that's all. I had to use the one fact I knew. (laughs) (laughs) On someone else's category, I should say. I would say we eat too much 57.5 calories a day. No, candy. no, no. You're saying percent of percentage calories? Of oh, percent. Percent so of calories comes be, from candy. Uh, that would be two and a half percent. No, that can't be nearly enough. The way Sam's setting the question, I'm guessing it, well, this is just guessing. You, yeah. I'm guessing 45%. Of candy? Wow. What? Well, he, what? Jeez. How much candy are you eating, well, man? <laughs> it's candy. I'm, so, Zeke, you're really close. It's about 3%. Ooh. So, Where'd it go, Zeke? So, listen, we, we're eating too much sugar. Like, but it's, it's not it's in a, candy. It's a serious problem. Well, every gram of sugar matters, but and it's different for kids. So kids consume uh, more of a percentage from candy. So your IDK is that roughly three percent of caloric intake among American adults is candy, straight candy. All right, very good. Less than you'd think. I thought it was more too. Before we ask our live audience to vote, let's check in with Sean. I know you've only had a little while here, but what can you tell us about these well, IDKs? Sam and Gretchen check out. I don't want to beat up on Zeke, but uh, a lifesaver's fifteen calories. But I also wanted that must to must be add... a big lifesaver. <laughs> I was talking about the little lifesaver. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, I also wanted to add that when you Google Zeke Emanuel and, and sausage, something comes up. And it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not that your grandfather sold sausages and like worked for Big Sausage. Uh-oh. It's that you once served sausage at a restaurant in D.C. In, no. U- in Union Market. No. Is it not true? No. Lies. False. False. I was a chef last summer in, at, at, and we did brunch. And I refused. Is that right? We had duck bacon, but sausage. You gotta, and we had no potato on the menu, I want to say. It says you served, it says you served mutton sausage to everyone. Mutton sausage. <laughs> I think the big loser tonight is the internet. <laughs> All right, now it is time for our live audience to pick a winner. So get out your phones and follow the texting instructions on the screen. Keep in mind the criteria for the panelists' IDKs. Did they tell you something you did not know? Was it truly worth knowing, and was it true, or at least true-ish? So, who will it be tonight? <laughs> Zeke Emanuel and political sausage-making, Gretchen Rubin and heartache medicine, or Sam Cass and candy constituting 3% of caloric intake? We will give you a few moments to vote. <clears throat> Okay, I have been handed the results. It pains me to say, and I mean pains, in third place, but with a very respectable 27% of the vote, Sam Cass. Candy, 3%. It just shows shows the value of facts, since I'm the only one who gave a fact. (laughs) Virtually worthless, right? Worthless. In second place, with 31% of the vote, Zeke Emanuel, which means that tonight's winner with 43% of the vote, Gretchen Rubin, heartache medicine. Congratulations. 
And that is our show for tonight. Thank you so much to Sam Cass, Gretchen Rubin, and Zeke Emanuel. Thanks to Sean Ramosperm and all our contestants. And thanks especially to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. Thank you so much. Have a good night. And on next week's show, since we took care of things that go in your mouth tonight, it's obviously time to move on to things that come out of your mouth. Our panelists are the linguist and author John McWhorter, the heart surgeon and TV doctor Mehmet Oz, and the writer and broadcaster Frank Delaney. I've been looking at pictures of uh, castratory, which is the, the tool used for castration. It's mm. like little silver shears. Mm. Which also sounds like the meanest, like, mafioso in the world, castratory. That's <laughs> <laughs> next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in partnership with The New York Times. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, and Brian Gutierrez. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. Thanks also to Dan DeZula, Jalenta Greenberg, and to Dan Schreiber, our transatlantic game doctor, Thanks to the New York Times, especially Charles Duhigg, Kinsey Wilson, Samantha Hennig, Diantha Parker, and Lisa Tobin. And to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or at nytimes.com slash idk. You can find us online at tmsidk.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.